1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Women's rights have become a galvanising issue in modern China. The Communist Party, unsurprisingly, isn't keen on any sort of activism. But it does want to show that it cares. The result is a rather selective, state-sponsored feminism... And when Anne Saxelby visited Florence in her 20s, she wondered why she couldn't get its sublime cheeses back home in Chicago. So when she returned, she became a champion of the food. We look back at the life of a woman who changed America's relationship to cheese. But first... This weekend, world leaders will gather in Rome for the G20 summit. On the sidelines of that summit, President Joe Biden is going to meet with his key European allies and they're going to discuss the next steps on Iran. Mr Biden has struggled to revive a multinational nuclear deal that was negotiated by Barack Obama in 2015 and then abandoned by Donald Trump three years later. Never, ever, ever in my life Have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran? Fresh talks over Iran's nuclear program came to a halt this summer, and the country has been dragging its feet on reviving those. This week, Iran finally said it would resume nuclear negotiations by the end of November. But in a press conference on Wednesday, Hossein Amir Abdullahiyan, the Iranian foreign minister, warned that those talks would not pick up where they had left off. And he repeated a demand that America release billions of dollars in frozen funds. Hope that an agreement can be reached is now fading very fast indeed. Indeed. Meanwhile, Iran's enemies are hardly sitting back. This week, Israel hosted seven other air forces for its blue flag exercises in the Negev desert. And as an Israeli army spokesperson explained, that's not all it's
2: doing. In the last uh, year, uh, the IDF has chosen to open a new directorate, a strategic directorate that deals directly and solely with the Iranian threat.
1: Israel is signalling that military options remain very much on the table as Iran's nuclear programme races ahead.
3: Iran is advancing rapidly in its nuclear programme. It has, for example, enriched uranium to 60% level of enrichment, which is extremely close to bomb grade.
1: Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. He's based in Washington, D.C.
3: And all told... It probably has the ability to break out, in other words, to make one bomb's worth of fissile material within a month. It's closer than it has been before to being able to make its first bomb. And a
1: fundamental reason for that is Donald Trump's abandonment of the nuclear deal, isn't it? But Anton, remind us how Joe Biden has handled this problem and and how it's
3: gone for him. Joe Biden campaigned on a promise to restore the JCPOA, as the nuclear accord was known, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. But it's proven harder than he thought. There have been six rounds of negotiations in Vienna and did not reach an agreement before they were suspended in June. There was an Iranian election. The more pragmatic government led by Hassan Rouhani was replaced by a hardliner as president, Ibrahim Raisi whose government has not rushed back to negotiate with the Americans. And American officials involved in the talks are talking about this being a critical phase, that if it goes on for much longer, there won't be much point in continuing with the JCPOA, because Iran will have made so much progress and will have learned so much that it can't unlearn what it now knows. So,
1: as we said earlier, Iran has now said it's going to return to negotiations by the end of next month. but. Anton, why has it been so difficult to get them back to the table? And how do you think it's going to go?
3: The, the ostensible reason is that the Iranians don't trust the Americans. And I think there is some of that which is justified. They say the Americans broke out of the accord, abrogated the JCPOA. But President Ibrahim Raisi, the new president, says he's still interested in result oriented negotiations. In Iran's mind, that means that the Americans must first lift sanctions before they reach an agreement, and that they must show that those economic benefits will be forthcoming, and they want to guarantee that the future American president will not come in one day and overturn the agreement all over again. Now, these are things that the Americans don't want to give. They've maintained most of Donald Trump's sanctions pending an agreement and a return to JCPOA because they want the leverage. And they can't offer the promise that this agreement will hold better than the last one did.
1: Anton, 10 years ago, when we were in a similar situation with Iran's nuclear program expanding and diplomacy apparently struggling, there was a lot of talk of potential American or Israeli airstrikes on Iran. Are we seeing any of those old noises returning right now?
3: Yes, we are. As the hope for diplomacy fades, the talk of military action becomes louder. The Americans, for example, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has spoken of other options.
0: We are watching Iran's comments, posture, very, very carefully, and... We are prepared to turn to other options if Iran doesn't change course.
3: Now, we don't know precisely what that means. The Israelis certainly intended to mean to include military action. The Israeli Air Force has been told to begin exercises. It has been given more money in the new budget that the Israeli government is due to vote on. And the Americans too, for example, have tested a new bunker buster bomb, which seems to be intended as a not very subtle signal to the Iranians.
1: Israel has attacked the nuclear programs of its enemies before, hasn't it? It struck Saddam Hussein's Iraq, it struck a nuclear reactor in Syria in 2007. Would a war against Iran look like those kind of strikes, do you think?
3: Those strikes tell you that an Israeli prime minister will go to almost any length to stop Israel's enemies from getting nuclear weapons. At the same time, those were single raids. Dealing with Iran's nuclear program is much more complicated because the sites are dispersed and a lot of them are buried. The Israelis would be operating at a great distance, some 1,500 kilometers. They would have to overfly and refuel over potentially hostile airspace. Some people think this is actually beyond the capacity of the Israelis. It must be said that they seem to have extremely good intelligence on what the Iranians are up to. They have assassinated nuclear scientists, they have sabotaged nuclear installations, and so on.
1: All of this sounds like we're at a pretty tense moment. How do you see the next few weeks and months proceeding?
3: I think the Israelis are weighing up everything. They're trying to decide how quickly the Iranians are likely to get to an especially dangerous point in the nuclear program. They have to weigh the risks of military action. They have to weigh what the Iranians will do. And they, above all, have to calculate what these new Arab friends in the region, and especially America, would do to help. The Americans are wary. They have signaled that they want to do less in the Middle East, not more. I think that the Israeli hope is that the threat of military action, combined with a more robust American diplomatic campaign and intensified sanctions, combined together will be enough to bring the Iranians back to the table and convince them to agree to a new diplomatic agreement. The danger, of course, is that the threat of war convinces the hardliners who are now in power in Iran that actually what they really need is a nuclear weapon to keep the regime safe.
1: Anton, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Great to talk to you.
1: In 2012, feminists in China noticed a shortage of women's public toilets. So they protested by using the men's. State police harassed and threatened them.
4: The Chinese government is trying to make feminism a crime.
1: A few years later, feminists were detained on suspicion of picking quarrels and provoking trouble. That was in part for their connection to those toilet protests. But the campaign worked. The Communist Party took up their cause.
4: Let us work together... And redouble efforts to promote gender equality.
1: President Xi Jinping pitched China as a champion of women's rights at a UN conference last year, and he referred to a famous Mao Zedong quotation Women hold up half the sky. In a submission to that conference, China described the progress it had made, that was in part by building more women's public toilets. But beyond bathroom facilities, the fate of women in China has become both a galvanising force and a potential threat to the Communist Party.
2: The political system in China is so inimical to any kind of activism, they claim that the Communist Party can sort out any problems itself. James Miles is The Economist's China editor. However, interestingly, they do pick up on some of the causes raised by activists when they do attempt to organise... China has suppressed coverage of the Me Too movement, prevented activists in China rallying around that particular cause. But it has taken up the theme to some extent and included sexual harassment in its first civil code, which it promulgated at the beginning of this year. And
1: how has state media handled that issue? The Me Too movement in the West was a a very bottom-up movement with lots of social organization. How has the Chinese state handled it?
2: Well, with great suspicion, numerous complaints were coming out through the internet about cases of sexual harassment, often involving prominent people, celebrities, academics. The government quickly tried to dampen down this online debate, made the Me Too hashtag effectively one that was off limits and prevented women from organizing. But nonetheless, these issues just keep coming out. And the government feels that it needs to respond to some extent. It certainly doesn't want to upset the traditional patriarchal social order. There is a strong sense within the Communist Party that the role of women is to support the family and to support society in in a caring way. And very interesting that Xi Jinping, when he talked about gender equality at the UN, first of all, raised how much women had contributed to the response to the pandemic, how many nurses had been mobilized. And I think that was rather telling.
1: And given that sensitivity, that desire to uphold what they see as traditional patriarchal values, what's it like when a woman does make an accusation against a man around sexual assault or sexual harassment? What's the experience like for, for accusers?
2: Well, more of these cases are now coming to Chinese courts. So that's progress of sorts. But it is extremely difficult for a woman to persuade a court to accept such a case, let alone to rule in her favor. And indeed many of these cases are in fact ones brought not by victims, but by the harassers themselves against the victims for having complained about them in the first place. But The Communist Party has focused on a handful of cases to advance its own particular agendas. One of them is clamping down on the entertainment industry and celebrity culture. It fears that Hollywood is kind of invading China with its values and weakening the the ideological backbone of the Communist Party with excessive behavior. So there's been a lot of publicity in state media about the fate of Chris Wu, who's an actor. He was accused by a university student of pressuring young women to have sex with him. And the other big thing that the is engaged in at the moment is, is trying to rein in big private business to sort of take it down a peg or two to show that the Communist Party is boss. Another case that has been given huge publicity recently involved a manager at Alibaba, who allegedly had raped a woman after a business dinner. He was found not guilty. But again, huge publicity. So there's, I think, something of that going on as well, the party cherry-picking partly for its own political purposes. So that's really
1: about sexual assault, sexual harassment. What about broader gender equality issues in China, things like economic participation, reproductive rights, those sorts of things. Has the Communist Party acted on Mao's lofty rhetoric about women holding up half the sky?
2: In some ways it has, to the extent that women do form a very large proportion of the labor force. Participation in in education pretty well equal in that domain. More than half of China's internet startups have been founded by women, as Xi Jinping pointed out last year. Uh, There have been some factors that have tended to make it more difficult for women, both to get jobs and to get advancement in their careers. One is prejudice of employers, that if they take on women, then they will bear an extra burden when they have children. Now that the one-child policy has been abandoned, couples are now allowed to have three children. Employers are even more wary.
1: James, you lived in China for many years, going back a long way, and now you watch it very closely from a bit more of a distance. Are there any changes in the role of women that strike you as someone who has observed China from both of those vantage points over such a long period of time?
2: Well, what's really struck me has been the way in which these issues galvanize so many Chinese women. And you can sort of understand why the Communist Party worries about feminism, because it's got people thinking about ways they can organize. And I think even now, in spite of the crackdown on feminist activism in China, the suppression of the Me Too movement, it's still an issue that resonates very widely across Chinese society. And that, I think, is an exciting development. James, thank you so much. Thank you, Shosheng.
4: Among the many things that have long mystified Europeans about America, Perhaps the biggest is the notable absence of decent cheese.
1: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
4: Despite the vastness and variety of this land, it seemed that you could only get around six from coast to coast. You were offered either mozzarella on pizza, cream cheese, Swiss, which came in little plastic packets and tasted of nothing much at all, blue cheese, which came in a plastic bottle, Monterey Jack, which was a sort of pale imitation of cheddar. And then, kind of presiding over all of them, Dayglo orange processed cheese food, which was melted over burgers and nachos.
3: Kraft American singles. These pasteurized processed cheese food slices can make your basic tuna salad sandwich pretty special.
4: And that was a pretty poor showing for such a huge land. Anne Saxelby was perfectly used to that. She liked cheese, but she didn't know anything about it. But she certainly had an epiphany when, as a very young woman, she went to Florence. And then she discovered when she was wandering through markets, nibbling on pecorino and dining blissfully on pasta and gorgonzola, that really there was another way of doing cheese. She wondered why on earth she couldn't get these things at her local grocery store. In 2006, she opened her little store, and it really was little. It was about the size of a shoebox with just a walk-in fridge and a counter. And she opened the gate that first morning and thought, is anyone going to come? Does anyone know anything about cheese? She realized she had a very uphill job of educating to do. She had been inspired in Florence, but she did realise when she looked at the way cheesemaking was done in Europe that it was a very different proposition. There'd been a culture of cheese there for centuries, consumers were loyal to their region and they knew all about cheese too. There were many government regulations and government subsidies which tied a cheese strictly to its place so that... You seldom knew who the farmer was, but you knew where you could get good parmigiano, where you could get good camembert. The make of the cheese and its name was all that mattered. In America, it seemed almost the reverse. And what she loved about the American scene was that young as it was, It was completely free and farmers could do what they liked. The only thing they couldn't do was to call their cheese a Camembert or a Gorgonzola because then that drew down the wrath of the European producers. But if they wanted to call it Twig Old Goat or Timberdoodle or Harbinson or whatever you like, it was fine to do that. You made whatever cheese you wanted, you gave it the name you wanted. And it was attached, rather than to a name or a brand or a piece of land, it was attached to the farm and the maker. So this really inspired her and also inspired all the small farmers that she was trying to help. Especially, as it turned out, a lot of lone women farmers who were perhaps grazing a few goats and had decided to pool resources and get into the business.
3: You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Anne Saxelby.
4: Eventually, she became so celebrated in Manhattan that she had her own radio show on Heritage Radio called Cutting the Curd.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and today my guest is Patrick Martins, founder of the Heritage Radio Network, and also my husband. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> um, so we're about...
4: In 2017, when Essex Market on the Lower East Side seemed to be under threat and her little stall was really no longer big enough, she moved to a new one in Chelsea Market, where she could supply the growing number of people who wanted to taste her wares.
0: This is probably my favorite blue that we have. It reminds me of like a French brie where it has that mushroomy
4: quality to it. By 2020, there were hundreds of restaurants taking deliveries from her, And there were about 50 farms, all in the northeast, mostly in Vermont, who were supplying her. So she had really revolutionized the cheese scene in New York, and she was beginning to change it in the country as a whole. She was keen on going into the future and aging and becoming more complex rather as a cheese would do. But she had always had an underlying heart condition, an enlarged heart, which meant that she died extremely young when her revolution was really only just beginning. And certainly could have spread a lot further in the United States.
0: It's produced on a lone farm in Zasavica, a nature reserve west of Belgrade and uh, they're apparently making and marketing this cheese for a thousand euros per kilo which would work out to about six hundred dollars per pound.
1: Anne wrote on Anne Saxelby who's died aged 40. this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Hannah Marino and Kim Gittelson, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Duncan Barber, Sam Colbert, and Sam Westron. Our producers are Stevie Hertz, William Warren, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Osandero, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias. They'll all see you back here on Monday when my colleague Patrick Lane will be hosting the show.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise, it's an innovation's paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.